I had the privilege of learning the blues from some legendary musicians. I was one of the few white musicians playing blues back in the 60s, and I want to share some of those stories with you. The 60s and 70s were divisive times, but the blues connected us and always brought us together. I'm Billy Pruitt. Let's talk a blues streak. The year was 1966. It was like a rainy night in Georgia, and I believe it was raining all over the world. But I was in the Sunshine State, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with no ice and snow, living like a king. I was in my little bachelor apartment listening to the typical torrential Florida downpour rain. It was beating on the louvered crank windows. It sounded kind of like a song. The aroma of ozone and thick humidity permeated everything. I lived right across the street about a thousand feet from the War Memorial Auditorium Arena on Southwest 18th Avenue. I looked outside and Sunrise Boulevard was shiny from the water reflecting off the lights in the cars. Otis Redding was playing across the street tonight and I wasn't going to let anything come hell or high water keep me away. You know, I remember I had been listening to his music for years and years and really wanted to see him, but something would always prevent me from making that happen. In 65, I couldn't get into a bar because I wasn't 21 in Pahokee, Florida. The brother carding people at the door looked at my ID and said, Oh, one year shy. You're 20 years old. You got to be 21 to get in here. He wouldn't negotiate. A 70-mile drive for nothing. I was a big fan of Otis and did a little research on his past. He moved from Dawson, Georgia to Memphis and got a job as a parking valet and left Memphis a star. He was already writing great songs at the same time he was emulating and mastering his musical heroes. And the first time I ever saw him was on my black and white TV, Soul Train with Don Cornelius. He was one of the few artists on that show that didn't lip sync like all the other guests. He sang Try a Little Tenderness and sang it live on national TV. Pretty rare for those vanilla times. He even improvised on that song and the band kept it tightly in the pocket. Sitting in my little bachelor pad, I had acquired two huge Bozak speakers. Didn't know what Bozak stood for, but they were huge. And I acquired them because a bandmate gave them to me to settle up on some money that he owed me. So I had placed them strategically in my living room where I could lay flat, put my head down on the rug, and my ears were exactly in between them, getting completely absorbed in the sound, the new state-of-the-art sound called stereo. I'd heard sound frequencies that I'd never heard on the radio, and the horn section close up, wow. I was a big fan of all those songs he wrote, to name a few, Hard to Handle, Yes or M, Respect, Aretha took it from him and made a big hit out of it, and Otis never really got credit for that song. Sweet soul music, sitting on the dock of the bay, made me feel like he read my mental diary or something. And Mr. Pitiful, I would always browse the local pawn shops looking for a guitar maybe I could snag at a bargain price. And one day I couldn't find any vintage guitars, and I saw a 35-millimeter state-of-the-art film camera that you had to be careful not to load in the sun so you wouldn't expose the film. And at that time, I was trying to document everything. 
I had no idea how to use it, but I was going to teach myself the same way I learned guitar licks. I'll figure it out, hmm, somehow. It was the middle of summer, and I had never been to the arena across the street, even though it had been walking distance, and I'd go by it every day. I listened to the radio like I always did, and Otis Redding was having a concert there at 8 p.m. tonight. Whew, I was excited. I could just walk across the street in those days, didn't have to park my Volkswagen, and there weren't advanced tickets sold on the Internet, so I decided I had to go. There's no excuse. Okay, I'm ready. Splash on a little Aqua Velva aftershave lotion. Out the door. But I didn't want to wait in line in the rain. I thought, hmm, I could use a little artist leverage to get in somehow. I soldiered out in the pouring rain to somehow get in. As I'm walking across the grass getting closer to the arena, I see that there are no people waiting in front standing in the rain. Nobody waiting to buy a ticket. But since I was walking across the grass and using a shortcut, I saw the backstage door with a few cars sparsely parked out there. So I went to the backstage door and I walked up about 10 concrete stairs and I pulled it and it opened. In those days, there was never any kind of security. I learned through the years that if you looked like you belonged somewhere, people would never question you. They would never question what you were doing. I walked inside and stood by the door, shaking the rain off of my trench coat like a half-grown puppy. I'd been bouncing around and local bands, but I'd never been backstage in a big-time arena before. Wow. Super tall ceilings, lighting scaffolds, big electric boxes, and the horn section was slowly milling around backstage, and they didn't seem nervous at all. <laughs> I was. I didn't know it then, but they were the Barquets from Memphis touring with him. They would walk by me once in a while and give me a friendly nod, and I would try to be hip and nonchalantly nod back. I'm not sure what they thought of the tall white boy with the shiny hair that had a 35 millimeter hanging around his neck. Maybe they thought I was some kind of photographer waiting for Otis. They were right. I was waiting for Otis, but I wasn't a photographer. I didn't even know how to operate the camera. The Barquets had dozens of chart-topping hits, and I had no idea. To me, it was just a cool horn section. Love to listen to the horns and harmony. It was like voices. This is, this is exciting. I walked a few feet, and I pulled back the curtain to peek out. And there were only about 15 people sitting in the front row. Didn't even outnumber the band. And I assumed the place would be packed with his fans, even in the downpour of that relentless rain. So I went back to the stage door, and I stood there quietly and patiently, leaving it propped open so I could maybe watch for Otis when he'd come. Was he going to pull up in a stretch limo? Yeah, that's the way stars come, right? Then through the rain, I saw a Volkswagen bug pull up, and there he was, sitting in the passenger seat, Otis Redding six feet one inches and he quickly opened the door and ran up the stairs to get out of the rain oh man i was ready for the friendly ambush there he was suddenly standing next to me 
I tried to be cool and collected, even though my blood pressure was through the roof. Hey, Otis, I'm Billy Pruitt. He looked at my camera and figured I was some kind of photographer, maybe from the Fort Lauderdale Pictorial Life magazine, the biggest magazine at that time. I said, could I get a quick picture? He said, okay, Slick. At that moment, one of the barquets were walking by, and I asked him, I said, hey, hey, would you take a quick picture of Otis and I? Right here, push this right here. I had the flash and everything all set to go. And he snapped the picture, and Otis looked really surprised. Boom, the flash went off. And I was hoping the picture would come out. But in those days, there was no instant gratification of seeing it immediately. You had to walk down and have it developed at the local camera shop or the corner drugstore and just cross your fingers. Well, I kept snooping around backstage, and I quietly sauntered into the big dressing room and sat down in the back by one of the big mirrors. Again, nobody questioned my presence. I was amazed how calm and collected everybody was, just making small talk as the guitar player and a couple horn players were practicing licks, warming up. Wow, this is so cool. I said, hey, aren't you guys nervous? <laughs> and they just laughed. I guess they figured if this kid was so green, there's no reason to explain. The band was talking about what a grind it was being on the road. Every city looks the same and how endless the road was, but they still loved what they were doing. They wouldn't give it up for anything. There was nothing else they would rather be doing, even though in the end they had nothing to show. They'd earned everything they'd worked for, and they were going to hold on to it no matter what. I filed that away in the back of my mind. Otis had just bought a private plane from James Brown. I said, Otis, where are you guys going next? And he said, don't know, Slick. I think South, Miami. Some guy stuck his head in the open door and slowly said, showtime, with no urgency at all. The band filed out one by one, and I followed the last guy on stage, stepping off to the side just before they were on the big stage. I found a good place where I could watch the band and the audience couldn't see me. Now it's five minutes from showtime, so I take a peek out from behind the curtain again. And there were about six more people in the front row. I didn't know much about show business, but I was wondering if maybe they were going to cancel the show because there weren't enough people. I was amazed how they still put in all that energy for a first-class show for such a small crowd, as if it was Monterey Pop Festival or something. Otis finished his signature song, Loving You Too Long, watching him on his knees with the rose-violet backlighting. I knew I would remember that moment for the rest of my life. Otis came off the stage and walked by me just dripping with sweat. It was dripping off his face and his chin, and he headed back in the dressing room, simply sitting down and grabbing a towel that was on the makeup table, silently holding his face in the towel for a couple minutes, not saying anything. The band straggled into the dressing room one by one, giving each other high fives. Otis said, see you later, Slick, and never let go of your dreams. I could hear that drive in his music. Never give up. Never give up. He walked by me with his jacket slung over his shoulder. Then he was gone, and the magic was over. But it wasn't over for me. I had no idea in just a few months he would die in a plane crash at only 26. The stars must have been aligned that night because when I learned of his death on national news, I remembered the photograph. I picked up the developed film and when I opened the big envelope, there he was, standing right next to me. That piece of history is in my documentary.
I sat down on the back steps of the stage door of the empty auditorium. In my mind, I could hear Otis's last words. He had spoken to me as an equal in such a humble way. Don't play for how many people are listening. Just play for yourself. You will know that feeling. It's gold. The words of the song came easily to me, shining like a reflection of the streetlights over the rain-soaked street. I knew he was right. I had witnessed the greatness of Otis Redding, and he shared his words of encouragement with me. And from that rainy night in Florida, I wrote this song, Feels Like Gold. I've been searching through these hills for a long, long time. Looking for nuggets where the rivers all run cold. Look like my patience is finally paying off because this time it feels like gold. I saw a first-class show Standing by the backstage door Made me really, really believe in myself So I took a look deep down inside And really turned the tide Because he made me feel like gold Really made me feel just like gold I stake my claim on a lucky star I play that game until I hit the mark I'll make my name playing the blues guitar Keep on shuffling on a song that I can really count on, you know, something pick me up, really grab a oh, oh. it's all clear to me now, ain't gonna be no more hand to mouth, because this time it feels like gold, this time Really feel like gold This time it, it feel like gold I say this time It really feel like Billy Pruitt at BillyPruitt.com or find him on Facebook. This podcast was produced at RocketChicago.com.